the digital transition. Digital Transition, brought to you by Fulton Trotter Digital, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 10. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm chatting with Bonbrine Digital's Emma Hooper. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Emma. That's okay. So I'm embarrassed to say um, I always forget your surname, and I think it's because I'm so used to seeing your Twitter handle, Little M. So firstly, Emma, for those that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So I started out, I um, so I have an architectural degree. Um, I started out as a architectural technician. So I've been in the industry 12 years. Um, 10 of those um, was as a technician. And, and I suppose as a technician, I got to produce lots and lots of information. I started out on a drawing board at university and then when I entered industry, I um, you know, started getting involved in 2D CAD side of things, particularly AutoCAD and, and MicroStation. Found I had a real sort of passion for software and sort of got a bit bored of that. And um, 10 years ago, I was introduced to a software called Revit, um, which um, I taught myself. Um, and kind of starting out, um, with retail clients where they had sort of more defined standards. They were bespoke, but, but we did have standards and rules in terms of information. And when I kind of then went away from the retail side, I found that there wasn't any rules for creation of information. And it just seemed a bit of a free-for-all. So that's kind of where I then started to turn to the industry standards to help me sort of structure my information better and, and the models, especially, you know, with, with sort of BIM, um, the whole sort of information side became even more complex and, and you need standards more than ever. And and I also did quite a bit of sort of work around IFC in terms of manufacturer's content. So um, I then started to look at IFC in terms of how that could be applied to a project and how I could structure my Revit models around IFC to give me some consistency. And so that's where it kind of all started in terms of that. Um, and then there was also the process side. So I started to see projects in a different light. I started to see them in terms of different inputs and outputs are much more sort of systematic um, from more of an information perspective. So again, you know, I started to um, read the, the industry standards around all the process side, you know, the BIM standards and everything and start to join them up really. Um, and that, that, that's kind of my background. And, and, and since then, you know, I've, I'm now an ambassador for the UK BIM Alliance and I'm also um, on the British Standards Institute to actually help start writing the standards myself. So, uh, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. You've skipped one important part, I think, in, in your description of your of your journey and that you're actually a co-author of uh, a book. Yes, I've also done that as well. Um, so from all the, the work I did in terms of Revit and IFC, I was asked to help um, Billy East um, write the um 
Revit's book for, for Kobe. Um, so delivering Kobe using Autodesk Revit, um, in which we focused on on Kobe as an output. You know, and, and there's quite a lot of good stuff about the background of Kobe in that book as well. Von Braun Digital's uh, quite unique in the sense that uh, Rob Jackson, that we spoke to earlier in an earlier podcast, uh, was a co-author for the Archicad side of the fence, and then you being an expert in standards and on the Revit side of the fence, co-authored the Revit book uh, on the same topic. Now, obviously, uh, it's an architectural architectural office being Bon Brian. Um, can you share with us the role that you actually play uh, being part of Bon Brian Digital's team? Yeah, so now I've kind of, sort of jumped the fence a little bit um, in terms of what I do. I'm My job title is a digital information specialist and what that is, it's my, my role is kind of split into two. So half of that is actually um, working on projects still. So um, actually doing information management on projects. So we either work um, with clients to help them define their requirements um, but also then plan strategies around actually delivering those requirements. I also help um, delivery teams in terms of process and technology to, to deliver them. So, you know, a, a big part of my role is actually helping Revit users to get good quality IFC outputs out of Revit. And then because of that, we can then actually check them. So we do a lot of checking of models um, in tools such as Celebri. And then we also work for contractors as well to help them, again, define requirements and, and, and look at the delivery strategies um, once they come on board. And then the other sort of half of my sort of role is, is around R&D. So actually kind of looking at in particular requirements, uh, also trying to sort of rationalise what, what we do at the moment because how we, we, we go about um, defining information is very ad hoc at the moment and there's a lot of waste mm-hmm. um, but also looking at sort of the standards and how we can then start to actually apply them and, and the practical application to projects because you know it's all right having standards but you know it does take a lot of work to actually work out actually how do you implement them on projects and you know um, there's, a, there's a lot around that as well um, and also you know the information requirements part it, it's complex if you do it right, you, know, you, you need to have that knowledge of a process, but also the technology side as well. I guess we've kind of kept it quiet so far in this in this conversation about what we're actually going to talk about today. And, uh, you know, we thought that we'd talk today about procurement because I guess procurement's a very important component of it. And, and once again, it's all about understanding uh, what you want, but from a client and when you want and how you want it. But from a client's perspective we want to try and cover that and and about the concept of procurement processes for this and the key areas being the standard components of what they want when they want it and who provides it and sometimes within procurement people will also include how they want it delivered are you able to discuss in detail if there are any specific differences with procuring digital deliverables to physical assets that people are used to? See, my first response to that, thinking of it from more of a theory point of view, is really there shouldn't be any differences. You know, one of the things I think we need to help clients realise is that 
information, you know, not just digital information, any type of information, you know, is an asset and it has tremendous value for them. But at the moment, we, we don't really think about it in those sorts of terms. You know, it's just really as important as the physical asset really going forward and, and that, you know, we, we, we can actually gain value from it and, and, you know, the information can actually work for the client. You know, cl- clients need to understand that, you know, the requirements are, you know, kind of fundamental part of the whole sort of digital deliverable process. For me, really, a sort of a physical asset, you know, it's, it's just the same as information uh, at the end of the day and it should be treated the same. Yeah, and I guess I guess the question then gets raised is, and I know in Australia we have these kind of issues where people are concerned in and around contracts. But um, and I'll I'll let you answer first before I put my opinion on it. It might sway it either way. But you know, do you think a, a project contract really needs to be amended to take into consideration digital deliverables? I think it all depends on the type of contract, uh, the type of procurement route as well. You know, some contracts um, will have um, clauses in them to define. Can, can have clauses in them to define digital deliverables, um, but you know if we're following you know the the process in ISO nineteen six fifty, then you've got the information protocol, which is meant to capture those sorts of elements, and that's then appended to the main contract. Um, and and really, I think it, it's all about you know defining those requirements and then putting them into contract. Actually, understanding what your needs are. Um, exactly what you want, being really sort of black and white about it. At the moment, you know, clients just say, well, I want BIM level two, but what does that actually mean? There's nothing really tangible there to deliver, you know, nothing to base anything against, you know, that the requirements actually become the um, acceptance criteria for the projects and, 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 um, and are benchmarks that you can actually then measure against at the end of each stage. Those are what really need to be captured within, you know, that sort of contract um, sort of setting. There's a lot of sort of activity around all that at the moment. You know, in the UK, we're producing guidance for ISO 19650, um, in which, you know, we're capturing a lot of the legal side of things. And then we've also got the, the Winfield Rock Report here in the UK, <clears throat> which is a, a really good sort of report, which sort of... Um, talks about the state of where we are in terms of all that um you know and if anybody sort of has questions regarding the legal side i definitely suggest reading that um and even on you know things on twitter you know we've, we've there's been for legal um, um account as well which is full of lots of useful um sort of knowledge um as well so my take on it is is that and it might and it might differ from the the experience that you've had from your end but I guess from my perspective, I guess the way I view it is that if the information deliverables are 100% clear with regards to what they want, when they want it and who has to deliver it, then there shouldn't be any real need to change the contract because they're clearly defined deliverable similar to how clearly defined the requirements for a built asset would be. And is is that the kind of view that you take share as well? Yeah, it, you know, there isn't really much change. Uh, you know, we, we seem to 
get fixated on this this idea that BIM changes everything when really it doesn't. You know, it's just a better way of working, you know, structuring information better. Information has always been there. We've always had to deliver it. It's just that we've never really done it well in the first place. And and now we we have a lot more that we have to deliver. And, you know, there's a lot more that's now visible because technology produces so much more. You know, it's all about going back to basics and really thinking about the information and, and, and yeah, delivering what is actually required. And, and that's what it's all about. So, yeah, in terms of that, it's not really that much different. It's just, you know, there might be some slight differences in terms of ownership um, uh, uh, and, and things like that, really. So, yeah, it's, it's nothing to really get really over hung up on about. And I think that's what kind of one of the issues is at the moment we do. Um, and I think that scares people sometimes and puts people off. That's that's one of the least things that I'm scared of. One of the key things that people look at, look at when it comes to optimizing the process of building information modeling is is procurement methodologies uh, similar to integrated project delivery teams. So where everyone uh, is part of the team and, and, and how it all goes. So you were involved in, in one of those startups. Are you able to share your experiences with us with regards to this process and any of the perceived benefits that, or risks that you experienced in, in, in beginning that journey? Yes, so I, I was really fortunate enough to work on the world's first integrated project insurance um, project. Uh, started um, back way back in 2015 now. And um, what integrated project insurance is, or the term now for it is um, insurance backed alliancing, um, and how that actually differs to other sort of integrated project delivery, sort of procurement models and alliancing models, is that you have um, one project bank account. There's one collaborative contract that everyone signs up to. It's a new type of contract, and there's also just one project insurance. So individual companies don't have their own PI insurance. It's just covered under the one. And everybody is selected from the start, you know, including the the contractor, but actually on IPI projects, they're called the constructor because, um, you know, it is so different. There isn't that contract there anymore. Um, and, you know, also FM can be selected up front. It's all about very much changing mindsets and behaviors um, putting people first and the focus is around about how we work together you know this is true collaborative working because all that all those um, the framework is there to actually do that it's not you know um, working collaboratively is actually very difficult and you need to have those sort of measures in place to help that you know um, with the one insurance hidden agendas are removed and there's a no actual no blame culture so you, you know everything operates on trust um, and um, it also gives you the freedom to innovate and, and look at new ways of working and, and things that you would never really ever think about on normal projects. So working on that project, for me, um, my biggest sort of lesson was how much everything is centred around people, in particular information management. You know, for me, it's all about people first, then process and then technology. And working as, as one alliance, you know, it, it's like a virtual company. So you're all in it together. You, you are, um, you're all working to one target cost. You have a pain and gain share. 
sort of incentive behind it all. Um, so, you know, you're all in it together. You all have to work together to, to earn that sort of that, that reward at the end of it. And then in terms of sort of the information management side, it, it just goes hand in hand um, with it. You know, having everyone on board from the start means that, you know, I, I could plan strategies. I could plan each and every information exchange because I knew what everybody's requirements were. I knew what technology was going to be used. And, I, you know, I, I could plan, you know, the handover um, exchanges well in advance. Um, and on that project, you know, we, we got to do sort of really simple things in terms of handover information that didn't cost money you know you know ideas of just you know how did we structure the the handover information you know, we created folders that were just you know on windows explorer but these these folders were elemental based so you know if the boiler broke down you didn't have to look for the um subcontractor installed to the boiler it was just under boiler and all the information for that boiler was there you know and then that could then link be linked to spreadsheets, to asset registers, and then even, you know, we could then link to the to the element in the model. Um, and and from a sort of more uh, information theory point of view, you know, having everybody on board, you know, from the start means that, you know, there's none of this creating information and then halfway through when another consultant comes on board, scrapping it, starting again. Um, there was no creating information purely for um, tendering of the contractor. So all that time and, and money that, that gets put into that for one purpose was removed. You know, the, the, the big sort of contractual barriers were removed. So, you know, in terms of being the architect, we were able to talk to the supply chain, which was amazing. You know, in terms of the design, we could design it with having the cost and time knowledge of the, co the constructor and, and the actual sort of real sort of technical detail of, of the specialists and subcontractors there from the start. So we were designing, you know, just the once, you know, the, the the sort of idea of value engineering wasn't required anymore, you know, and, and you know, we, we could look at sort of elements in terms of their life cycle cost rather than just, you know, capital costs. And also in terms of information, um, you know, we could actually reduce, you know, 20% of information we produce because a lot of actually what we produce on projects is solely for what I call ask covering. You know, we, <laughs> we, we create so many emails um you know where we copy the world in um just to cover our own backs to blame people you know when things went wrong because it was a no blame culture there was none of this forensic analyzing of what happened when and who was to blame you know all that time you know required for that we actually put into actually solving the problems and working together but also you know in terms of in terms of construction and on site you know design and construction was much more merged there wasn't that big black hole in between where you know information seems to get sucked down and it doesn't then come back onto site and and the ideas of then you know actually having a feedback loop from from on site you know because you know we spend so much time um creating these 3d models that are perfect and you know we've done all the clash detection but actually, you know, then you get on site, well, you know, things happen, you know, that there'll be things that we've not thought about and things will go out of tolerance. 
at the moment there isn't that feedback loop which then you know updates the model with actual the physical build um and and there's so much more sort of potential around that which you know i, I think ipi gives the framework for you know having that alliance in place um there's, there's so many sort of ideas there um and, and so many benefits and and actually on 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 the the ipi project the client actually went back so um there is actually another ipi project with the same client so they obviously saw the benefits um in terms in terms of handover you know you've got very sort of well-defined criteria and you can't actually um hand over the building without actually meeting those requirements so kind of this idea of soft landings it all sort of inbuilt within this procurement model you know it's not an add-on it's, it's just fundamentally part of it and and part of the um, actual sort of um, procurement framework um, because it's not based around REBA stages either you know it, it, it's all sort of bespoke um, and there's, there's much more of a um, the whole sort of commissioning and the actual testing of the physical asset that is so much more inbuilt within the program you know you have to have this defined sort of time to do that you can't hand over the building without it you know on, on sort of projects you know design and build that tends to be the bit that gets squished and squished and squished until you know you've only got a few days maybe to do it and um, for me you know this is why I kind of push this way of working because me it, it, as an information manager it makes sense and I can't I can't get the value out of what I do value out of the technology without this being in place you've just given a valued argument for everyone to change the way that they work now from my perspective i i I kind of asked one question and the one question being in terms of costs uh are the clients truly seeing the savings from the efficiencies in terms of uh the less information that's you know created essentially is waste and and the you know, no one's having a go with regards to the pricing. They, you know, in terms of actually winning the project, is the project still one with a reasonable brief in place that the client has, um, so that uh, you know the team can put a reasonable pricing against it in terms of a fee and obviously against a, a recognised construction cost. Yes. So the sort of the, the actual selection side of it, it's it's just it's not based upon who's the cheapest. Um, it's all based upon. You know everything else that you can offer as well. You know we actually found on on the project that you know where if if people had been procured on cost, then that's kind of where it fell down a little bit, um, because people weren't in the, that right mindset to actually work in an alliance, um, and, and that's kind of where sometimes that that fell down. You, you get what you pay for at the end of the day and and the, the, the clients you know um had had some bad experiences like many clients do in terms of um you know what happens after the project finishes for for the client you know there's actually sort of less risk really um they're part of the alliance and and i i think they get sort of great benefits because you know that that they're getting the the asset that they actually wanted um, because it can't actually hand over without um, being compared to that sort of criteria. I think that's one thing that we'll struggle with in Australia with uh, with government funded projects still. Uh, there's obviously a value that's attributed to um, extra, extra um, you know, extra skills or value-adding value that you can deliver to a project. But 
unfortunately most projects here are still based upon a minimum viable project so it's about delivering against um you know the minimum requirements so it'll be interesting to see that change moving into the future here in australia now uh in my role i'm i'm currently a director or an owner of um of an architectural practice and i'm rather risk averse and i guess one of the things that i i guess i struggle with and this is just kind of it's it's not trying to beat down on on the concept of um integrated project insurance projects or alliances but i actually struggle with the concept of shared risk and reward personally it's because you know if i am highly competent but uh, the builder for one reason or another isn't competent at his end and makes a huge mistake, you know, I, I then become liable for that mistake. Uh, do you have any advice that you give people like myself that, that have that fear that could help remove it? I think if, if the mistake was that big, um, it wouldn't just come out of the blue. It, you know, you'd be building up to it. You know, you're all working together. It's open book. It's transparent. Um, you know, um, the fact that it's no blame as well means that you know, if you do make a mistake, you can own up to it really early on, rather than hiding it away. So it then snowballs into a much bigger mistake, which which tends to happen. You know, because you know, on on, on sort of more traditional projects you know if, if you make a mistake you, you hide it you don't want to tell anybody about it um so you know we, we were you know, encouraged to be open about that um you know and there was no you know huge mistakes that happened at all um you know with the, the whole sort of shared pain and, and gain share you know um, you know it, that, that's what kind of that's the incentive that's what binds you as a team you're working together you know, for that shared goal, um, you know, the actual sort of risk and, and pain, um, pain and the gain share isn't, you know, it's not, it doesn't necessarily have to be shared equally, you know, it can be based upon, you know, the size of your business. Um, so, you, you know, you're not actually having a risk that's too big for you to actually um, take on. I think having that in place is really important and it's actually linked as well to the the risk and opportunity register. So this is actually really important on these on type, types of projects. And this is actually created really early on as you're actually defining the target cost. It's linked to it. It's actually linked. The risk is linked to the pain um, and the opportunities are linked to the gain. So the actual risks are known much earlier on in the project um, and because they're known, you can put steps in to mitigate those risks really early on. And also the opportunities, you know, we never re we talk a lot about risk, but we never talk about opportunities on projects and actually realizing those opportunities to actually give us, you know, uh, more of a reward at the end of it. And, you know, if, if just because it's collaborative as well, if, if one sort of team member isn't pulling their weight, you know, isn't performing, you know, th this isn't, you know, a, an environment where you're, you're scared to actually, you know, challenge people or it's not just about, you know, it's not about hugs and all that type of, of thing. You know, if people aren't performing, then, you know, they, they can be booted out the project, you know, if, if, that's, if that's an issue. You know, it's an alliance at the end of the day, you know, and everybody's got an equal say, you know, and, and if the alliance feels that someone isn't performing, then, yeah, they, they can be, you know, um, struck off the project. I'm hoping that's the case, <laughs> but you, you've almost convinced me. You've almost convinced me. And, and also in terms of, of the supply chain. So you know what happens on sort of standard projects is that you know the risk gets pushed down 
to the supply chain, you know, and and they're kind of suffocated by this risk all the time. It's there, yeah. and and there's never any opportunity for them to think about doing things differently, for them to innovate, for them to try to new things on site, you know. And, and this form of procurement allows that, you know, it allows us to actually work with the subcontractors and ask them, you know, what would you do differently? You know, how, where do you think the efficiencies could be made? At the moment. We, we're kind of forgetting about that side of things. And I think a lot more work needs to be done in terms of the supply chain. Before we go back and kind of summarise everything we've talked about, because there's been a lot to digest in this chat, but I guess one key thing for clients right now to understand is the procurement of digital deliverables. So right now we're going to talk about um, contracts or procurement methodologies that aren't in an integrated alliancing component and it's still following along a similar line of of design, bid, build or design and construct. Now, in the new ISO standard, uh, 19650, there are opportunities, I guess, along that supply chain of multiple appointing parties. Um, do you want to talk about why that could be the case? So... You know, it's it's not just the the main client who has information requirements, um, and you know they should use those requirements to then procure their team to deliver those. You know, um, yeah, that that was always in the old standards, really. It was just I think a bit too subtle for most people to understand, and you know we're still not really seeing that at the moment in terms of of bids from from main clients. You know, in terms of them. Defining their information requirements to um, you know select their team, so that that's that's the main client as the appointing party. But then you know there's everybody else then once selected on the team who have information requirements and who then also select people to work for them. So um, you know they still have information requirements, so they still need to use those information requirements to select the best people to then deliver them for them so you know the contractor is is kind of a really good example of that um you know the, the contractor you know as part of iso 19650 um has you know exchange information requirements and you know what they're meant to do is it's meant to take parts of you know the parts of the the main clients um requirements and kind of use them in their own and then you know you get this cascade down the chain everybody who um wants needs information always has requirements and they're based on a purpose and um to get the people to deliver those requirements you need to be very explicit when selecting the team um in terms of, of, of you know getting the right people to deliver those and we're just not doing that at the moment properly we're not seeing the value of those information requirements in procurement um you know in terms of main client in terms of contractor or even in terms of you know design consultants as well because you know they also select people you know specialists to work for them and you know at the moment we we procure people and there's a mismatch of what we want and what they can deliver so what i say 19650 starts to do is actually you know starts to say right you know you've got to start thinking really you know hard about your information requirements and the people who are going to deliver those it's it's very much much more upfront um you know a lot of work needs to go into defining those requirements and then actually using them to select um team with um 
and if you do all that um properly then the actual sort of the strategy side the planning and the delivery is actually much more simpler because you've got the right people on board from the start to do that and i guess the key thing that i look at with regards this is quite a simple one and and my example would be along the lines of uh, say for example a structural engineer now the the information that a structural engineer would need to provide to a client would be very minimal in terms of their um, level of information need, as we call it now. Um, but the information that a structural engineer would need from uh, their fellow consultants, being the architect in knowing the uh, the design of the building, and the services engineers to know the penetrations and the 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 loading of their equipment that would be sitting on their structure, that it would be the information requirements that that particular consultant would need that would be unique to one that the client would need. That's that's that how you'd see it as well. Yes, um, definitely. I mean, that kind of um, goes across sort of different sort of delivery teams or task teams. But yes, definitely, um, and and that's what we need to get better at talking about. You know, that that's for me what information management is all about is is understanding exactly what everyone's needs are, what information they need to satisfy those needs. At the moment, we just we just don't do it, and it's very ad hoc. And you know, coming from a modelling background. I know how incredibly complex putting information into a model is, you know, and I need, you know, from, from that perspective, you need to know exactly what you want so you can actually create the strategy, the modeling strategies in place right from the start to actually be able to deliver those. You know, it, it's no good like at the moment um, in terms of when the contractor comes on board halfway through a project, the, the QS asking for certain types of information, you know, at that stage when really you needed to know that at the start because you could have started building those objects in a way that delivered that or setting the standards in terms of the model to help deliver it um yeah and that, that's just one sort of purpose and use for information you know it, it's everything is based around purposes and use and until what, what we seem to do at the moment is we we seem to delve into the detail straight away but you can't actually define the detail until you've defined those purposes and and for me that's that's kind of another real big key message that i'm hoping the new iso will will get across to people that you know it's all based around purposes so we've covered a lot today emma and i've let you go and had a lot of fun hearing uh your views on everything but i I guess i want to try and cover off in a in a summary or i guess a, a, a summation of how I've taken the information that you've provided today. So from a procurement standpoint for clients, the the first key thing is um, if they want information, they ask for the information at the right time. So they're actually defining their information requirements before they actually engage in any procurement or contract with with any delivery um, team across the project. That's the first step. Yep. Now, secondly, uh, if we take a step back and assume for the time being that the majority of projects will still be delivered uh, using uh, procurement methodologies that are kind of similar to the way in which we deliver them now and not uh, under integrated project insurance, that as long as the, uh, the information requirements are clearly defined, there shouldn't be much need for a change to the way in which your contracts are documented. And I'm going to put a huge disclaimer on that and say, please seek legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. 
Yeah, I'm not a contract expert in any <laughs> means at all. No. no, so we probably shouldn't say that at all. But the key thing about it is, is that the, the the most important thing to be aware of is that as long as you're stipulating what you're wanting, then yes. it's a matter of speaking to your legal team about about the way that the contracts are written and ensure that they understand that that's that, that the, those requirements are incorporated into the deliverable requirements of that contract. Yeah. And I guess uh, finally, uh, my final summation would be regarding integrated project delivery or integrated project insurance projects and alliances that they may become the way of the future uh, and our clients may see uh, savings due to the fact that that there's less digital waste or less waste created because we're actually working as a team from day one. Would you say that summarised uh, our discussion so far or is there anything I missed? I know. So in terms of the IPI, you know, it's obviously not just about digital, you know, it's about everything, you yes. know, um, every part of a project, you know, it, it, it changes, you know, it's completely different. Um, and, you know, for me, it, it just makes sense to work that way. Cause I think if we actually described the way we currently work to, you know, an alien, they would look at us gone out, you know, you do what you, you, you create, you know, a design and then you get somebody else then to do it and they might start again and, that knowledge from before isn't then passed on and it's just we just overcomplicate things i think <laughs> keep it simple that sounds like a new t-shirt for me for next year so emma <laughs> thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today and discuss the processes of procuring digital deliverables and information so i have one final question and one that i've been asking all of my guests what does bim mean to you <laughs> That's a very good question. It seems to change every day. Well, what does <laughs> you know, it mean to it, you today? <laughs> no, it, it's always, for me, it's always about information management and it's been like that for years. Um, you know, it is, it's about all information, um, but it's also about how we move to more structured digital information and how we define it, procure it, plan it deliver and then ultimately check it you know it's all about inputs and outputs but also it's also about promoting digital literacy within construction um and i see that's kind of another one of my sort of roles and and trying to alter people's mindsets towards information and, and using technology and one of the things that kind of frustrates me at the moment is that you know in in our everyday lives we're, we're quite happy to use you know certain sort of features on online in terms of shopping so you know we'll quite happily filter and sort and search for things but when we try and apply that then to a um a construction project you know on a, a document management system people seem to go out of their minds and it's too difficult so um and yeah for me it, it, it's really is that sort of helping people on their journey and 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 trying to give them context and understanding of why we're doing what we're doing and why we need to change so probably a really long winded answer there but yeah <laughs> i can't turn that into a soundbite but uh <laughs> thanks once again emma for your time so for more information on emma hooper and bon brian digital please head to our website where you can find links to read more about them i look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time until then good luck with your digital transition if you would like assistance with your digital transition please contact us at digital at fultontrotter.com.au For more information, or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. 
Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. We would also appreciate it if you provide us with a rating and take the time to provide us with a review. Thanks for listening to The Digital Transition, brought to you by Fulton Trotter Digital. Digital transition.